0: Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome to We Earth Radio. This is your host, Michael Stone, and I am thrilled to have one of my friends and inspirations, Bill Plotkin. He is a wilderness guide, eco depth psychologist and agent of cultural regeneration. As founder of the Southwest Colorado's Animus Valley Institute, he has since 1980 guided thousands of women and men on the journey of soul initiation. His previous books include Soulcraft, Nature and the Human Soul and Wild Mind. And today we're gonna be talking about his new book, hot off the press, The Journey of Soul Initiation, a Field Guide for visionaries, evolutionaries, and revolutionaries.
1: Bill, welcome to this new show we have. Thank you so much, Michael. It's great to be here. And I want to say I have so much enjoyed our conversations in the past, and I'm looking forward to this one.
0: I thought maybe we could start out talking about your own soul journey and how you've been informed by a lot of things. One of them, the awareness of death from an early time and how you became the cocoon weaver
1: Yeah, um, probably like a lot of people, I had a a spiritual orientation in in my early years, in my early teen years, for sure, and and throughout my teens, which is to say, simply that, like most people, I was asking questions about, what's this whole show about? What's this um, life, what is life about? Why are we here? And what is the world? And what does it mean to be human, in particular? And what are the mysteries about the world. And I think most people have those wonderings if they're not suppressed, which unfortunately they often are. Also, my early years, I had a series of repeating dreams when I was a child. It was the same dream every time. And it was uh, a dream in which I Walk up a dirt road, and which I later discovered is was really a dry desert wash in the desert, which I didn't know about as a child because I grew up in New England. But um, I walk up this dry road, and it leads me to a cemetery, and I end up going into an underground crypt in the cemetery, and there are these monks doing ceremony there, and they and they're doing a ceremony over uh, a dead body. They welcome me with their eyes. They don't stop the ceremony, but it's as if they acknowledge me as something like an apprentice. The mysteries of death have also been very much alive, funny way to put it with me. Again, I think that's true for most people. In my early 20s, I started exploring various spiritual paths. I will not go into any details right now, but there was a number of them, mostly Eastern oriented. I found them, they helped me in, to have a, this greater Sense about what the world's about, but they—they all—they all of them seem to be missing something, something of the, the mysteries of the natural world and of our own human depths. Later, in my twenties, I was a um, graduate student in psychology. I studied depth psychology that resonated more fully with me. And and then, in my late twenties, I discovered the Work of Stephen Foster and Meredith Little and from California with the School of Lost Borders, who were reintroducing the contemporary approach to the Vision Fast to us Westerners. It was a few years before I met them in person and trained with them, but through correspondence with them, I felt I had enough sense about what a Vision Fast is to take myself out into the Colorado Mountains for five days and fasted for four of them. And on that fast, I had my first soul encounter, what I call a soul encounter, which is an image, a glimpse of our deepest way of belonging to the more-than-human world. In other words, our, what I call our unique ecological niche. I believe that we humans, just like every other species, are born to take a particular place in the greater Earth community, not just in the human village, but in the greater Earth community. To make a pretty long story short, what I was shown through an encounter with a butterfly, actually, on that first fast was that my place in the modern human community was to weave cocoons of transformation for my people. And it took me years to even understand what that meant, to, let alone uh, begin to do it with any kind of skill. And that's pretty much what I've been doing, training others to um, do similar things and guiding individuals to weave a cocoon for themselves for the transformation from psychological adolescence to true adulthood. Beautiful.
0: I love that you mentioned the people who don't have those questions that you started life out with and that sense of being suppressed or as you talk about in your new book, the arrested development, the adolescence, it is more and more seeming like that we are in an adolescent phase, particularly given the things that are happening in the U.S. today. How do people get to that place if they're not there to finding those questions about what life is about? Why am I here? What's my relationship to the earth? The kinds of questions you're talking about when they're numb and they live in a world of separation? They're separate from even their own bodies and emotions, let alone the ecology of the world.
1: Yeah, boy, good question and a really important one. People can get there with help and guidance, but that begs the question, when under what circumstances would people even notice that they need some support with that and you know, we can do the best we can with podcasts like this one and books, friends and family who might recognize that someone is really stuck. And and one of the fundamental potentials or dimensions of being human is our relationship to the other than human world, is our embeddedness in this greater earth community. And in a healthy culture, not only is every human born, with that intuition, that sense of belonging to the greater world. But everything about their family, their educational systems, their spiritualities, their way of making a living supports the experience of our being human animals who are members of this magnificent community of diverse species and habitats and so on. But in the contemporary world, it's been some number of years, maybe hundreds of years, maybe even thousands in some ways that we've gradually separated our, the, our ways of life from the larger animate world. And what this does is it creates a deep sense of alienation or exile or a restlessness because we don't feel we belong deeply anywhere. Like even if we have a really close circle of friends and a loving family, and like a job that we love and so forth, if we don't feel at home in the larger Earth community, there will be a certain kind of anxiety and restlessness and a sense of homelessness that we might not even be able to put words to, like I am now. It's this kind of ecological exile. It isn't that hard to return to Earth, if you will, or to come back home. There are practices. It's part of what we do at our Institute, Animus Valley Institute. We help people go through an experience that we've ended up calling echo awakening, short of course for ecological awakening, which is, it's not just an intellectual understanding that we are kin to every other species on earth, but a somatic, deeply experiential discovery of that. And it's a very profound experience for people it's people often say that the veil that separated them from the rest of the world just dropped or shattered, which is something that, again, often happens on our programs at Animus Valley Institute. And people will say, I never knew there was this barrier between me and the rest of the world until it shattered. And then it was like the, this great homecoming and everything about a person's life changes that it's, it's not necessarily less challenging there are new and different kinds of challenges. Cause then we start asking before too long, what is my unique way of belonging to this greater world? And that's a very different question than what job will I have or what social role will I have? It's an ecological question. and As I say, it, it it changes everything.
0: I think one place that I'd like to look at is this is all great, but what if people don't want to do this work, to come home, to discover, to step into this. And, you know, the work of, our work is paralleled in many ways over the years, you know, the spiritual, the ecological. Mine has been also social justice. And I got to a point a few years ago where I went, Gee, we're just screwed, you know?
1: Mm.
0: Um, yeah. And then because I come from a background of trauma, it was always interesting to me. And a lot of new things have opened up in the last five to 10 years around trauma and particularly collective trauma and seeing how that frozen parts of our past that are unintegrated when in groups we have opportunities uh, to connect and to co-regulate, co-create together a way to integrate them. And what I find in that work is that when that happens then those questions begin to arise and a kind of interconnectedness arises with people. So I'm wondering your thoughts about how you see that in when you take people out into the wilderness and, and before getting them prepared for that, the relationship of this awakening to healing the trauma that keeps us from feeling even our own bodies or emotions.
1: Yeah. Wow. Great question. Yeah, something we f- focus on at Animus Valley Institute is um, it's this whole realm we call holing and self-healing. Holing, which means to cultivate wholeness, is a matter of, of um, developing or cultivating our innate, of the facets of our innate human wholeness. And and what we've done at Animus, we've used the universal four directions, cardinal directions wheel, or the wheel of the four seasons, or um, the four times a day, sunrise, noon, sunset, and midnight. Use that as a template to map our facets of human wholeness. So in part, that's, it's, we do it as preparation for a person's journey of soul initiation which again is the topic of the new book, is cultivating wholeness is preparation, but it's also, um, it serves us to do anything well in life. And one of the things that's important to do in life is to heal, because we all have wounds and, and traumas, especially in the contemporary world. And we become, at Animus, become convinced that one thing that is even more effective than being healed by someone else, a guide, a therapist, Uh, pastor and uh, life coach and so on is self-healing is being is being able to heal ourselves sometimes we can't but when we can that even goes deeper and it's more Mm -hmm. profound than being healed by somebody else and what allows us to heal ourselves is those facets of wholeness which I haven't named yet it's this is the now the topic of my third book which is previous book which is called wild mind Mm -hmm. trauma comes up A lot for us. And in fact, as we grow and develop, there's even deeper traumas that come up that we weren't ready for when we were uh, less mature. And the way I've come to understand trauma, it's part, it's um, derived from the work of um, Gabor Maté, Canadian physician, who explains that trauma, the way he uses the word, and I've adopted this, trauma is not the experiences the really the overwhelming difficult emotional experiences that we had sometime earlier in our life it is what we do inside ourselves to protect ourselves from that okay so it looks like i can tell it, see you're nodding and we're on the same page there <laughs> yeah. so the little twist we've done at animus in our wild mind work is that um, the things we do inside ourselves so that we're not even conscious that we do are what we call our subpersonality, or inner protectors. Our inner protectors, especially our escapists. Our escapists are one kind of inner protector, and they they know that that earlier experience, that traumatic experience, was so difficult for us that they want to keep it from over us from being overwhelmed, the ego from being overwhelmed by it. And so, these protectors separate our consciousness from the memory of what happened and also from the emotional and somatic impact or residue of those experiences. So from this perspective, healing trauma is a matter of learning to enhance our wholeness, which is to say cultivate these four facets of wholeness Mm -hmm. that I alluded to, and then being able to hold our traumatized inner protectors in such a way that um, eventually we're able to remember what happened and to to do that while we're being held both by others and by ourselves in a nurturing space, because otherwise we just get re-traumatized. But if we can be in that nurturing generative uh, place and hold ourselves while we allow ourselves to have those emotions and somatic experiences that we've had been protecting ourselves from, then we have this very profound healing. And some amount of that self-healing or support from others in our healing seems to be necessary to get to the stage of life where we're ready to undergo this spiritual adventure that I call the journey of soul initiation, which results in true adulthood. And the catch here, Michael, is that a very small percentage of contemporary people in industrial growth societies ever reach that stage of human development where they can undergo the journey of soul initiation. And uh, which is to say that there's a relatively small percentage, maybe only 10% of contemporary humans in modern societies who ever reach what I call true adulthood. That's a really radical and profound statement, especially if it's true. which I've been convinced in in 40 years of doing this work that it it is true. But what I mean by adulthood is something that's not even on the radar of uh, contemporary Western society. We don't even have a concept of adulthood that corresponds to the way I use it. But I didn't just make it up out of whole cloth. I believe that, that my understanding of true adulthood corresponds very closely to that that you we find in healthy cultures, although there's very few left in the world, because of our dominator cultures. But the indigenous traditions speak of adulthood in a way very similar to the way I've I've come to. Hmm. Okay, but take a breath again there. <laughs> <laughs> you leave me with so many questions,
0: Bill. Yeah. So, let's see. I love that you put together healing with wholeness, not healing what's broken. Because I think the point of the underlying premise of many people who are doing healing work is that they're fixing something and there is nothing broken. And I I constantly am reminding people that a very intelligent body that you are in and a nervous system that you were in Protected you at a time when there was a threat to you that you wouldn't have been able to go on if you hadn't shut that part down, that part of your essence, your relationship to men or women or life or these bigger questions. And so, you know, the, the process of actually seeing people in their wholeness with dissociated parts, soul loss parts that uh, are not lost, they're there, they're just like frozen past that is needing to be integrated. So the question, of course, is how do you integrate? And I love that you look at the self-healing, yes, but in a community being held so that it's safe to feel unsafe in the process of awakening to the edges from adolescence into adulthood. So I think that I, I love that you brought that up, that sense of there's not really something broken, that healing is actually a matter of wholeness. Maybe you'd want to comment on, on that.
1: Yeah, so beautifully said, Michael. That, and that's exactly right. The approach that we're taking and we're finding more and more uh, healers and including psychotherapists taking it although it's still relatively few um, is a, a approach of that starts with wholeness um, so in other words we're not primarily asking what kind of syndrome or diagnosis does this person have as a psychologist what's wrong with this person and how do we eliminate this thing that's wrong we're not asking that we're asking what facets of their wholeness are underdeveloped. De- and in most contemporary people, all four facets are underdeveloped. Un- under um, so we're not first going after symptoms and diagnostic um, um, disorders, and, um, but saying, how can we help this person uh, cultivate their wholeness? And what we find is that when people do that, many of the symptoms disappear without addressing them directly. And then the person can also, through their cultivated wholeness, um, begin a process or a practice of self-healing. Yeah, I just want to
0: say something, slip something in there before, you know, you you throw out so many things. (laughs) But I think that this thing that you were talking about earlier, the belonging is directly related to what we're talking about. Because when we believe ourselves to be separate and flawed, then of course, how would we have any sense of belonging inside of that? So I think that's a really important point. And I I just wanted to bring in your dream here and, and what the journey of soul initiation is, which is also written for a field guide for visionaries, evolutionaries, and revolutionaries, and I take that to mean people who are ready for this kind of work, but this journey of soul initiation, cultural transformation from an egocentric society into a ecocentric or soul-centric society. Talk about that as you're talking about your path to adulthood
1: yeah okay there's a lot of pieces there um and like when you start with what you were bringing up about belonging that's where we are stuck so many of us in the contemporary world so many people are stuck in. they're looking for a, a place of belonging and usually most people think of it in terms of socially and um i think most Humans alive today are are stuck in a stage of development that I consider early adolescent. But I don't mean that early teen years. I mean, it's a psychological stage that you can spend your whole life in if you get stuck there. And I believe most people do get stuck there. And the the goal of early adolescence is to find a social place of belonging that is absolutely authentic. It It fits who you are. And that is so difficult now because of um, the way our culture is arranged and the way children are raised or their, their development is actually thwarted. So, yeah, so belonging. And so one thing that, that happens in a healthy early adolescence is that we develop our sense of, we further cultivate our sense of belonging to the than human world. Uh, which is to say our consciousness shifts from ego uh, egocentric rather, to ecocentric, that we get a sense about ourselves that we're not just here to serve ourselves. That's what, which is what egocentric means. It's it's all about me. Um, and it shifts to ecocentric, which is a sense of belonging to the larger um, earth community. And how can I serve that community? and but something that has to happen in early adolescence in order to get to late adolescence is to succeed at shaping a uh, a persona, a way of being uh, in the words, world socially that is accepted by your peer group and um, and is authentic in terms of your values and your and your, uh, and your uh, intuitions about about the world and your values. Uh, but if we're traumatized um, and and we've had and, and we don't have this sense of belonging to the more than human world, then early adolescence becomes so difficult, and we never end up succeeding at those tasks. Um, so, but when we do succeed at that, the people who do, maybe twenty percent or so, um, make it to the late adolescence. Which is the fourth of eight stages in my map of human development, which I call the Soul-Centric Developmental Wheel, and um, I call that fourth stage the cocoon, not coincidentally. Um, and in that cocoon, we go through—that's where and when we go through the process, the spiritual adventure and I call the journey of soul initiation, and it results in an adult and. An adult is someone who understands themselves first and foremost, ecologically. They understand what place they were born to take in the larger earth community, like in my case, weaving cocoons. Um, And if you have a society where, um, you know, approximately 25% of the people are true adults and 25% are true elders, then that society is rooted in its larger ecological context, and it's an ecocentric culture. And ecocentric cultures are not only life-sustaining, unlike our life-destroying cultures, but life-enhancing. A healthy culture, like everything else on the planet, enhances life. Everything, every species on our planet, um, you might say the process of evolution itself, or the planet itself, is designed or has an intention to continuously complexify and diversify life. And so that, and everything is designed to give away or to support or to gift the rest of life. And the only good exception that we're aware of uh, is our species. And, and who knows how many hundreds or thousands or hundred or thousands of years this goes back, but we haven't been doing a great job at gifting the rest of life. We've been more egocentric as a species. It's all about me. And of course, we've reached the early 21st century when uh, our technology has developed to such a degree that it's possible that the way that we're out of sync and not enhancing the the greater life of the world, that we're actually uh, now in danger of Uh, destroying the basic Earth systems that make our lives possible and the lives of so many other species possible. Probably everybody listening to this knows about the sixth mass extinction that is well underway now and how our human activities are drastically, tragically reducing the diversity of life on our our planet. But this can be turned around. And there's, um, of course, lots of groups and individuals and organizations that are... um, doing our best to turn things around. Uh, But in the long run, one of the most important foundations to create not only a life-sustaining culture, but a life-enhancing culture is to uh, reclaim and reinvent and re-envision initiatory processes to get people from early adolescence through late adolescence into true adulthood. Um, And that's where healthy cultures really from you can't design a healthy culture you only can design a process to that leads to true adulthood and then the true adults and the true elders by the way they interact and cooperate and design social systems that's where a healthy culture comes from it's an organic development um, like everything else on our planet yeah okay there's another 12 cool. things <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly where to go with that you know, I had the amazing opportunity when the veil was lifted, the bamboo curtain was lifted in China to go into China right after the whole shift in China with somebody who had been there for 32 years, 16 of them or 17 of them in prison, an American, mm-hmm. and uh, travel throughout China. And we were at this temple one time, and I said, What are those two lion gargoyle things at the gate of the temple? I asked him, and he said, Oh, those are the guardians of the truth. I said, Guardians of the truth. What are the guardians of the truth? He says, Ah, paradox and confusion. I thought, Hmm, interesting. So, when you're talking about this, all about me, in one sense, it is all about me, all about me in the sense that. As uh, Basho said, why are you unhappy? Because everything you do and say is about yourself and there isn't one. Mm. (laughs) So this idea of authenticity, I don't think we're we're off on this, just another way of trying to bring it in. People are incongruent. We say one thing, we feel another and our body is saying another thing you know, my earliest shamanic teacher was Gabrielle Roth. She used to say, we're trisophrenic, you know, we're we're out of alignment with our mind, our body, and our, and and it's true that we are. And the authentic place of wholeness that you're talking about is that kind of congruency. But there's so much fear and there's so much so much suppressed shame that people carry from from being born into this culture, that the work really starts with this, not in a narcissistic way, but in a way of recognizing that all of these challenges and things that we come up against, the barriers in life are the, the coding of our identity, our story, the story that lives us in life. And so there is a sense of in order to do, at least this is my my own journey, in order to deepen my own connection with the ecology, with the world around me, with nature, to recognize how much I'm a part of nature and that the more I do my inner shadow work, and embrace those places that, as you say, the more space you make, I'm putting it in my words, the more interior space you make, the more those things that need to be healed come up. So that's, a, that's to me a paradox that it is about our inner healing, but there is no self in a sense when you get to a certain level you recognize that it looks like Bill's over there on the screen in Colorado and Durango. I'm over here on the sunshine coast, but really, I mean, you're showing up in my nervous system and I'm showing up in your nervous system. So in a sense, I'm over there and you're over here. Talk about your sense of that from your model. Wow. <laughs> um Let's see that- um, Sorry to take so much air time, but- No, that's that's
1: great. It's a beautifully woven question. So yeah, this um, one way to angle on this is about individuality. Because I don't quite share the that Eastern sense that there is no self. Well, I do in a way and I, I don't, but then well, that'll get us off in a tangent if we go there about dependent co-arising and so forth. and. Um, But this sense of individuality um, is both our major problem for us contemporary humans, and it's also um, the way through to something else. So egocentric individuality is the problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this is another way to say how I, I don't quite have the same view as the Eastern spiritualities, that for me, the ego is not a problem at all. It's not the problem. Um, per se that the way I underst- the way I use the word ego I'm simply referring to the fact that we have this apparently unique capacity we humans of conscious self-awareness we're able to be aware of ourselves as separate individuals um, that's basically con- the conscious self that's what I mean by the ego. without the ego in that sense there is no human. Um, so the problem isn't egos in that sense the problem is, immature egos or the lack of mature egos Um, and again a mature ego is is one that understands itself as being born to serve the world the more than human world the earth community in a way that only it can its unique way of serving the world so to use an eastern um, image of indra's net the world is just like spider web of, um, of these jewels that are all connected. Each one is connected to everyone, every other one. And um, if you look carefully at any one of these jewels, you see reflected in it, all the other ones, which is what I think, Michael, that's, that's the sort of image you were alluding to. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the implications is that each of, each of us well, the way I like to say it most generally is that everything is what it is by virtue of its relationship with everything else. That nothing exists independently, Um, um, that we are what we are because we have a certain relationship with the other things in the world. And that's a basic ecological principle, that everything, this is my way of saying it, but that everything is what it is by virtue of its relationship with everything else. Um, And that's what we discover on the journey of soul initiation. We discover um, what is my relationship to everything else, which is to say, what is my place or to use an ecological term? What is my niche? What is my unique ecological niche that I was born to occupy? Um, As humans with egos, We have to go through this process called childhood and early adolescence, which, among other things, we're learning how to be a human ego in a um, human village. And we need to find our way of belonging in the human village, which is to say just to become basically human before we can do anything else. So what happens in the course of development in a healthy culture is that we are supported as children by our families and our community um, to develop in these ecocentric ways, um, which I describe in my second book, called Nature and the Human Soul, which is the uh, soul-centric wheel of development. And um, we, so that we reach um, early adolescence, um, well, actually we, we reach late adolescence and and we go through this journey of soul initiation, and when we be, when we enter early adolescent, sorry, late adolescence, the cocoon, we need to be separated from our early adolescent understanding of who we are. Our, our ego has to be dismembered, or um, dissolve, essentially, so that not only do we uh, relinquish our current social and often vocational roles when we enter the cocoon, Um, we also are called upon by our own psyches to um, surrender our faith, that any way of identifying ourselves in terms of social roles would be a meaningful or deep way of understanding who we are. Um, that so I mean, we often use the analogy of the um, butterfly or the moth and in its development um, because among other things we, we use using this image of the cocoon and caterpillars are essentially adolescent versions of of that species of moths and butterflies and caterpillars go prof- to, through profound changes themselves. Um, they go through moltings, what biologists call moltings, in which they shed their skin, somewhat like snakes, and grow a new larger skin. And caterpillars go through anywhere from something like four to seven moltings. Those are profound changes. You lose your skin and you and you grow another one. And the analogy to us humans, it's all in early adolescence here, because caterpillars early adolescence. Um, that we may leave one social circle and enter another one, or we might leave one romantic relationship and and begin another one, or we might leave a a job or career and start another one, or we might live in California and and move to British Columbia. (laughs) It just changed the uh, place where we live and so forth. And for early adolescence, that's like uh, a a molting. And people, in early adolescence, think that that's something like a soul initiation or something, but it's not. It's a caterpillar uh, transformation. Um, but then at some point, we the caterpillar has um, shed its skin as many times as it can or needs to. And then it finds itself doing this really mysterious thing. If it's a moth caterpillar, it starts weaving a cocoon out of silk. And if it's a butterfly caterpillar, it actually has its own body turns into something like the cocoon called a chrysalis. And what happens there? That's what happens in the what I call the cocoon stage of human life, analogously, um, which is late adolescence. Um, For the caterpillar in the cocoon, its body dissolves almost 100%. It becomes liquid, it becomes a caterpillar soup. And, um, And then these cells that have been in the caterpillar body all along, kind of hidden away called, which biologists call imaginal cells, mm-hmm. which have the image of the butterfly or the moth, the butterfly of the moth called by biologists an imago. So these imaginal cells are imagining the imago, the butt of this flying creature. And what these imagine, imaginal cells do is they reconfigure the recyclable Uh, elements of the caterpillar into a butterfly body, a completely different body. Well, analogously, that's what happens in the cocoon stage, late adolescence, of of humans, those of us, maybe 20% of most who ever get there. But it's not our bodies that dissolve for humans, it's our ego that dissolves, our way of understanding ourselves. And out of the recyclable materials of that ego, is created an adult ego. And an adult ego understands itself, as I've been saying, as having been born to take a particular place in the earth community, not, it doesn't define itself in terms of its social or or vocational roles. Um, So in this, um, in the cocoon, the, uh, of the caterpillar cocoon, the butterfly body, uh, develops. And when it's fully developed, it, the cocoon cracks open and the butterfly or the moth comes out. And when that happens analogously for humans, that's the passage of soul initiation. That's the moment we have moved from late adolescence into early adulthood.
0: Bill, would you take us through the whole descent to the soul in the five phases? Just kind of give us an overview of the five phases to make sure that people get a, an idea of what you've written about in the journey of the soul initiation?
1: Yeah, perfect. Um, Michael, you helped me lay the groundwork here so beautifully that I'm now actually able to say what the book's about <laughs> in a way that I haven't so far. The book is actually about what you just mentioned, the, the descent to soul. It's, um, it's not primarily about the journey of soul initiation, The Descent of Soul is a particular experience that happens. It's like the key experience or experiences because it can happen more than once within the journey of soul initiation. Uh, I wanted to call the book, The Descent of Soul, but my uh, wise editor said, we won't sell as many books if you call it The Descent of Soul because people, their connotation to descent is going to hell." and uh, people won't get past the cover. If we call it The Journey of Soul Initiation, they'll get past the cover, and then after several pages, they can discover the books actually is about the descent to soul. So um, yes, Michael, the, um, I've mapped the journey, uh, sorry, The Descent to Soul is having five phases, and that's, what, that's the primary structure of the book, the five phases of the descent. And um, the names we ended up with is, are, there's five, and there's Preparation. Oh, by the way, I, I, I use a visual metaphor here of going down into a canyon, um, like, a, like the kind of you know, sandstone, red rock canyons we have here in the Southwest. And there's five pieces of that, or elements or dimensions of the canyon. There's the, like the mesa as you approach the canyon, there's going down the like cliff wall there's being at the bottom, and there's um, coming up the other side, and then on top on the other side. So that corresponds to these five phases of preparation for the journey, the dissolution, dissolution of the early adolescent ego, the encounter with soul, the actual experiential glimpse of the unique place we were born to take, and then the metamorphosis of the ego actual reshaping of the ego into an adult ego, and then the enactment of that way of belonging in the world as a gift to our people and to the larger earth community. So again, it's preparation, dissolution, soul encounter, metamorphosis, enactment. What this corresponds to with the uh, moths and butterflies are um, caterpillar life, Um, the going into the cocoon and the dissolution of the caterpillar body, the imaginal cells going to work, the actual forming of the butterfly or moth body, and then the flying of the butterfly to do its adult work of pollinating flowers and um, procreating. Caterpillars basically eat, they consume. Caterpillars are consumers. They eat lots of leaves. And they need to do that to grow. Uh, butterflies and moths don't eat much at all, but they are gifting the world by being butterflies and moths by pollinating everything else. Um, so, in humans, if we end up um, stuck in our caterpillar early adolescence, we'll just be consumers our own our whole life. And isn't that interesting? That's the way we refer to ourselves. Mm-hmm. When you listen to economic reports, it'll say consumers are buying more of this or less of that. We actually speak of of other of our fellow humans as consumers. Yeah. And if we think about it at all carefully, we go, wait a minute. If we're only consumers, we're going to consume our planet, and we are consuming our planet. And that's what we'll do. That's what adolescents will do if they don't have adults and elders to steer them. In a different direction, namely towards becoming adults and elders who are pollinators.
0: Yeah, wow. So I I love the journey and trying to think of the the thing that I most want to bring out here. Well, let's go back to what you said earlier, first of all, that humanity's unique ecological niche that we have. Why is that so important to recognize that we have a role in the, in the all (laughs) that's very specific. And you, you mentioned the Anthropocene that we're in the sixth mass extinction. So on the bigger picture, why are humans here? Why did consciousness, this problem that scientists can't figure out the hard problem. How did a piece of meat end up with being conscious of being conscious? And why is that so important to our evolution?
1: Well, that's that's one of the biggest questions um, that we can have. And it certainly has been working me for a long time. It's, I bet it has for you and so many other people. It's, you know, and there's different answers. People have suggested different answers to that this question of what are humans for? That if everything is here to enhance the life, the general life of the animate world, what is our particular role in enhancing life? Really good question. And some of my favorites are like uh, the um, German poet from the early 20th century, Rainer Maria Rilke, he suggests that we're here to praise, that our role is to praise the rest of creation. And we have a capacity of praising, that, of recognizing the wonder of existence and being able to express it in words, poems, dancers, art of all sorts. Um, Thomas Berry, the, the great um, eco-theologian he called himself a geologian, was uh, one of my uh, most important mentors in my life. Um, he said, We humans are here to recognize the universe as a universe. Because as far as we know, we're the only ones who can recognize we actually live in this kind of cosmos. There's this really big picture that, that we're aware of. Um, and then maybe my favorite answer so far is my partner, Janine, who you might have been seeing going back and forth on the window behind me, on the door behind me. Um, Janine Marie Haugen, who says that we humans have a capacity to imagine the future. And that is our role is to partner with earth in the evolution of life here on this planet by imagining the future possibilities and then making them real. Um, But you can have an adolescent imagining, which we are doing a lot of, which is destroying the world, or an adult and elder imagining, which would actually allow us to not only sustain life, but to enhance life. So this question, uh, it's really a matter of um, One twist I have on what Janine says is that, we were designed, we humans, were created by Earth to be conscious evolutionary partners with Earth. But conscious evolutionary partners, for me, does not mean we use our strategic minds to figure out um, how to be good partners with Earth. But rather, um, adults the way I've been talking about them, Adults don't figure out what place they have in the world. They discover through the journey of soul initiation, which place they were born to take. And earth makes that decision, you might say, or mystery. Let's say earth makes that decision, what place each of us individually was, were born to take. So when we're being, if we're being, when we ever start to become as a whole, co-evolutionary partners with earth, it'll actually be Earth still calling the shots in in that sense, because Earth designed me to take a certain place, uh, my little place in the ongoing evolution of our planet and has designed, it, created every human to do that. And the way we get to be, the way we are evolutionary partners with Earth are is to discover what place we were born to take and then to embody it as Effectively and as beautifully as we can. Mm. Again, you're bringing up
0: so many questions, and we have like three minutes left to go. Mm-hmm. I love that you brought so many people in who are my, my teachers and mentors: Joanna Macy and Thomas Berry, and and of course Rilke. Always, I love Rilke's in seeing that whole idea. I think that's a beautiful tool that I teach in in my own work, that idea of the seer and seeing the scene and the seer going in, seeing each other. I also brought up um, another answer to the question as you were giving the different answers. I was thinking of Brian Swim, who of course is the um, Thomas Berry, whatever, continuing on in his thing. And he said, the uh, cosmologist, he said that the, uh, that we are the universe's way of seeing itself. I think mm-hmm. that's a, a, a kind of brings together many of the things you said. One of the things that's, that's, I think, challenging besides this myth of separation, and maybe this is a good place to, to wrap it up again, is this idea of surrender, of risking everything, of relinquishing control. That's very, very difficult for people. I think it's even more difficult for women in some ways, this idea of surrender. I've been surrendering enough my whole life. I'm not going to surrender anymore. But the idea of actually allowing ourselves to not need to control, but to, to use that as a portal for opening into something much larger, the emergent future that perhaps is calling us that we can't hear because we're holding on for dear life uh, to, to being in control and from what the past has left us. So maybe you can mention something about that. Um, yeah, so many other questions, but let's deal with that one.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. I don't know if I can say it better than you, Michael. I just can relate it to the, um, the descent to soul that once we reach that cocoon stage, and at some point in the cocoon stage, we're called to make one or more descents to soul. A big piece of what happens on the descent, especially that, that dissolution going down into the canyon phase, um, we, we have to relinquish our control um, because we're not in control uh, on that journey. There's mystery is taking us for a ride. Mm-hmm. And we, the ego, our ego is the raw material that's gonna get reshaped. And the, the ego is not the pilot, not the driver of, of, that, um, of that journey that's about to happen. This is something Carl Jung spoke about in, in quite a detail about his descent to soul, his first one, which he called his confrontation with the unconscious. That it was like, he wasn't a scientist doing an experiment. He was a uh, Raw material of an experiment, and it was being done on him, and, and he had to relinquish his control, which is very strong, and 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 especially in, in men, in our culture, and it's you might yeah, that you have to say uh, men who start on the descent to soul first have this often have this sense that I'm going to go into this canyon into the depths and i'm going to figure out what my life's about well figuring it out is control and it doesn't work that way so we have to relinquish and go along and that that's why our preparation is so important because you you need a really well-developed psyche to relinquish that kind of control um, and similar with us as a species that um i i I don't, my sense is that we won't have a really strong, clear answer about what our next step in evolution is as a species until we have enough uh, initiated adults and elders. And then by uh, being together as adults and elders and creating healthy places for children and adolescents, we'll, we'll discover that we were designed to take a particular role that we could hardly imagine now. So we won't even be in like cognitive strategic control of who we are as a species, we'll discover it. Mm.
0: So much more to talk about. It's just always a joy to be with you and stimulating. Bill Plotkin, thank you for your new book, The Journey of the Soul Initiation. And uh, you know, I really look forward to our next conversation, Bill.
1: Thank you, Michael, me too. You you are as as fun and, and engaging as anybody to speak with. Thank you. Oh, much love, blessings to you. Thank
0: you, and to you. We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.